This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. This is the What School Could Be podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please consider joining the What School Could Be global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your mobile device or go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I look forward to seeing you there. Today, in a major departure from our usual format, I am talking to not one guest, but three. All three serve in specific roles at Embark Education and Embark the School in Colorado. Embark is a micro middle level quote school that exists within two businesses, Pinwheel Coffee Shop and Framework Cycles, a full service community bike shop. Yes, you heard that right. Bike services and sales, the best brewed chai and coffee in Denver, and an incredible example of deeper learning. Amazing, just amazing. Miguel Gonzalez, the founder of Embark Education and now a director, received his undergraduate degree from the University of Northern Colorado in English with an emphasis in secondary education, and he holds an MED in educational leadership from Penn State. Megan Perry, Embark Education's Director of Curriculum and Instruction has a BA in Political Science from the University of Rochester in New York and a Master's in Public Affairs from the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at UT Austin. Brian Hayosaka, the head of Embark, the school, has a degree in International Studies from the University of Illinois and a Master's in Educational Leadership from the University of Denver. He taught in Guatemala in Denver's public schools and at a Montessori school before a chance encounter led him to embark the school. Jimmy McHugh, a new and treasured friend and colleague with Open Way Learning, has now joined Embark the School. And he said the following, and I quote, when I first met Miguel and Meg, it was over Zoom during the beginning of the pandemic we discussed this unique learning ecosystem called Embark for a podcast episode on, quote, revolutionary education, where students worked on projects that were authentically relevant, embedded within a cafe and bike shop, and integrated across disciplines. I didn't realize at the time that just two years later, I would join their team. Today, I still have the same sense of awe and admiration for what these two have created, given the radical trust that exists between both students and educators, along with the intentional and progressive push towards learner-centered, competency-based education. And it continues to grow through my relationship with Brian, head of school, who may be the most service-oriented, empathetic leader that I've ever had the opportunity to work with. His coaching and personal touches have pushed me to be the most present with students in joyful engagement while warmly demanding that our learners participate in rigorous tasks to build their quantitative reasoning and critical thinking skills. You are about to hear from trailblazers in middle school education, so enjoy the anti-gravitational pull of this conversation, just like a trim tab on a ship. I hope this episode is the small change that creates the beneficial pivot in your journey." End quote. And now, here is my conversation with Miguel, Brian, and Megan. Miguel, Brian, and Meg, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Thanks. Excited to be here. Thank you. Very happy to be joining. Excited to be with you, Josh. So, Miguel, in Ted Dintersmith's film, Most Likely to Succeed, one of the two main storylines is about Samantha, a young and very shy student 
at High Tech High who becomes the director of a school play, a theater production about Afghan women and the Taliban. Samantha blossoms and comes out of her shell because of this directing experience. You have a similar story about taking a theater tech program that caused you to fall in love with learning. So what is that story, Miguel? And I wonder if you could describe what it means to fall in love with learning. Yeah, that's a really great question, Josh. I definitely appreciate the movie most likely to succeed and, you know, definitely an inspiration point for me and in my career. And, you know, I, I definitely connect with Samantha's story as, you know, stepping into a space of having real world experiences with, with authentic outcomes in which you're you're really able to to not only like put your learning to to work in a meaningful way, but to be able to engage with it and see other people engage with your learning in a real world space, you know? And so for me, I had a similar experience actually also in theater that I fell in love with learning. In high school, I was a part of the theater production class and we were putting on Pirates of Penzance. Mm-hmm. And my, my job was to paint a cloud. <laughs> and it, it makes me laugh because, you know, well, that seems like such a simple, a simple thing. I, I was so proud of that cloud <laughs> and, you know, invited my family, my friends to all come watch this play. And, you know, of course, like a high school play, you know, our high school was not, was not known for its theater production, although I'm sure it was good for what it was. You know, people just couldn't quite understand why I wanted to have them come and join and see this. But, mm. you know, for me, it was really important to be able to share that space because I had, it was the first time that I can really recall having something that I was fully responsible for. That, you know, even though the cloud was just a part of the backdrop, for me, it it felt so important Mm. to have that be something that, you know, other people were counting on and depending on, you know, to have the play be successful. Mm. So, you know, when it comes to falling in love with learning, you know, a lot of it has to do with this space where you're engaged and, you know, you find meaning for yourself and for others. It's not just a performative space where you're doing it to get something done. For me, when I really fell in love with it, it was the space where I could see myself in my learning mm. and I could see how it was contributing to the community. Mm. And you had ownership of that cloud, right? Yeah, I sure, I sure did. It's so funny. It was in the upper left-hand side of the set. I'll never forget. Mm. You know, Miguel, I struggle sometimes with regrets. And I've had lots of conversations with people and I've even written about some of the regrets that I've had in my life. And I want to live my life without regrets, but that's pretty impossible to do. And one of the things that I regret was that in high school, I never got involved with any of those kinds of things, theater productions, all of that sort of stuff. And in fact, I was so shy, Miguel, that you you couldn't get me to speak if you hit me with a stick. And I wonder that what you're really talking about here is the way that we present learning to young people. And that one of the ways to do that is to sort of demonstrate all the different parts of something and invite the young people, the young learners to have ownership of a part. And then they get drawn into the whole, if that makes sense. I mean, is that a fair statement? Yeah, it is. You know, learning is a part of a whole. I mean, both for the individual and also for the community. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking that if somebody at our high school had ever said to me, oh, you could be part of the tech crew, because I certainly couldn't have been up on stage, that would have been an invitation to come into the greater whole, right? That's what that's what I'm thinking about now. And I'm having regrets in this moment, like, oh, because now I'm thinking, oh, shoot, I wish I was part of that, right? So that's actually a, you know, a really great story. So Miguel, founding a school is a hard, hard thing. And most of our listeners likely wonder if you were out of your mind when you founded Embark Education. (laughs) So take us through briefly the moments that led up to your decision to do this project and talk a bit about the specific contribution Embark Education is making to the reimagining education movement writ large in the USA. And I'm just going to add a quick sort of metaphor here. I've always been kind of locked into George Herbert Walker Bush's thousand points of light and thinking that Embark is one of those thousand points of light. But when you get closer, if you turn the Hubble telescope on it, it's actually a whole constellation of things that are going on. So anyway, sorry, big question there. 
<laughs> yeah, that's a that's a big one and, and a complex one. As I go back to the, the first part of your question, which is what led me to the founding of Embark was really a space where, you know, a lot of it came from my own personal journey, as well as honestly, just the, the right opportunities and the right times. So, you know, I can only take credit for for so much of Embark, you know, because truly Embark has always been more than me founding it, but it's been a community coming together to create these learning experiences for youth. Mm. You know, but what really, you know, for me led to Embark was was thinking back upon my times as in my theater production class or mm. when learning has been most meaningful to me, which oftentimes was not set in the traditional classroom. I was a mediocre student. You know, I was doing just enough to get by, trying to fly underneath the radar and doing just enough to kind of to earn grades. But when I reflect upon learning and, you know, as I moved through being early in my teaching career and through earning my master's degree, I kept coming or finding myself drawn more and more to, you know, the more non-traditional pedagogies, Montessori, Reggio, Mm -hmm. project-based learning, and really feeling drawn to those things. And at one point, just before founding a bark, I was the principal of a Montessori middle school. Mm. And, you know, that was that was certainly transformative as I was able to really feel and see a lot of the practices coming into place. But one of the things that sets Embark apart is that it's what we say is pedagogically agnostic. Mm. Because what I have mm-hmm. found is that oftentimes in innovative schools that are drawn or based around a pedagogy. Sometimes you find yourself in conversations that are about defending the pedagogy versus defending what's best for the learners. Mm-hmm. And so at Embark, we set that to the side just slightly. So that way we could truly focus on, on what was right for the learners, regardless of the pedagogy that we were in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really trying to, to ground and, and bringing those things to life, as well as, you know, having those real world experiences in our coffee shop and our bike shop so that students had opportunities to see they're learning intertwined with the, the real world and have lasting interactions. Mm. You know, much like Maria Montessori had actually first envisioned when she thought about having, you know, secondary learning. You know, she called she referred to it as the Erd Kinder and having middle school be on a farm mm. where students were able to to really have like authentic interaction, like milking a cow. And if they, you know, tug too hard on the udder, that they would get real world feedback in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so right. while certainly pouring a latte or supporting in the bike shop uh, is not exactly the same as as milking a cow, you know, it's like a modern context of of being able to envision what that what that might look like. Mm. And so, you know, I think that over the last number of years, we've been fortunate to step actually beyond that concept of just pouring lattes or fixing bike tires for for customers, but really having students contribute in truly, truly meaningful ways to to our businesses and stepping beyond what even we thought is possible for, for middle schoolers. Mm. You know, when you really trust in them, they're, they're truly brilliant. Mm. And that's the contribution that Embark is making to the reimagining education movement writ large. Yeah, I would say so. You know, there's one of the things that we really intentionally did was have Embark be a middle school. Mm. Because innovation in the United States, typically, you know, you see a lot of, like we were saying, Montessori schools, Reggio schools at the elementary level. And you see a lot of project-based schools at the high school level. But oftentimes, certainly in Colorado, middle school is oftentimes the glorified elementary school yeah. or the little brother to a high school. Mm. And truly supporting adolescents in the middle school age to develop mentally, mm. have the learning experiences that are right for them, and doing that in a way that's meaningful is truly adding to the conversation of of what's possible in, in education. Mm. We're really proud of working in that space and we've truly seen our learners thrive. So Miguel, that's a perfect segue to my next question. You were a Pahara Institute fellow, and Pahara's mission is to strengthen and sustain values-driven leaders transforming education. Last year, I read a book titled Finding the Magic in Middle School by Chris Baum, who was a guest on this show. And Kim Smith at the Pahara Institute noted that Chris Baum's book 
breaks us free from the old narrative of adolescence. So Miguel, my question is, what do you see as the magic that can happen in particular in middle school? And I'll note, Miguel, that I hated middle school, so help me want to go back and do it again, but this time at Embark, of course. And and FYI, I love making coffee and I love riding my bike long distances. So we have an entree there, you know? <laughs> yeah. I love that. And I think, you know, what you said is is you you hated middle school. And how often that narrative is true is just truly unfortunate because middle school is such a beautiful time of understanding, you know, who you are and, and how you fit into the world. And that's what Embark is supporting adolescents to do, right? To really build experiences where they they can safely be in community and try on different personalities, find their edges of what's possible for themselves and also what's acceptable within community. And, you know, being able to do that in a way that, you know, the students are really being able to both interact with themselves, but also interact with, with adults and those that are older is an important experience within, you know, middle school. And so, you know, for us, as we really think about how we support that magic to be true is, is really based in our concept of radical trust. Mm. We really trust that they are brilliant. And one of the things that we do is, you know, we talk about how every student that enters into Embark already has our trust. Mm. It isn't earned. And that's a concept that, you know, rather than a student having to set out and earn trust, which is the societal norm, especially in middle school, you know, to be able to just operate from the space of allowing them to make their mistakes and then not have consequences on the other side, but conversation and opportunity for learning. You know, as students navigate and build their own schedules here at Embark, we don't have a master schedule that we have the same things happening every week. Mm-hmm. Our learners actually build their schedules every Monday in collaboration with the educators. And, you know, we oftentimes hold conversations around, you know, where do you need to be working in order to best support the learning that you're doing? Mm-hmm. You know, because they have choices to be able to move around from coffee shop to bike shop to learning spaces to, you know, to outside. And oftentimes they need support and conversation in trying to understand those different things. And so it's breaking down some of those spaces and trusting that they can first make that decision on their own. Mm. And oftentimes they'll get it right. Mm. And many times they won't. And so there's these beautiful spaces of building relationship with them and being able to build that safe conversation versus you know consequences to what we already expect as adults. Because mm. we've been through those learning phases. They haven't. Mm. So it's something really special that we've been able to do. I know that it's probably not exactly like this, Miguel, but I suspect that you and and everybody else who both learns and works at Embark, that you all often have what I might call magic conversations. In other words, you've spotted something and you've said, wow, that was magic. Is that is that a fair statement? Does that happen a lot, given the fact that you are so committed to this radical trust and giving the students the opportunity to chart their own path forward in a kind of wayfinding sense? Is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's definitely a fair statement. We see those those magic moments all the time. Mm. And, you know, it's been one of those things where we've actually had to think about intentional practice to allow ourselves to to sit in that magic. Yeah. Because it's it's such a common thing for us that sometimes we can take it for granted. Right. That's awesome. So slight shift in direction, Miguel, as a way for our listeners to understand at a much deeper level the concept of building teams, especially in education, using some sort of process of strengths assessment. Talk to me about Meg Perry and Brian Hayosaka who serve as director and head of school, respectively. If we think of the Embark team as a group of people with diverse strengths, what are theirs and how do they bring their strengths to the work of joyful and impactful learning? Oh, Josh. I mean, I first I would say that, you know, as I opened with, Embark is nothing without others. Mm. And, you know, Meg and Brian are two of the most talented educators that I've worked with. 
you know, and we're also fortunate to have, you know, an incredible, incredible educator team as well with Jimmy mm-hmm. and Brett and and Carissa. And then we also uniquely think of all of our bike mechanics and baristas also as educators, mm-hmm. you know, so we have this really, really powerful team of more than just teachers, but our shops truly contribute to our students' experience as well. And they all offer something different. But as I think about Meg and Brian, who certainly this would not be what it is without their brilliance. You know, Meg, when I very first spoke with Meg about joining the team at Embark, one of the things that will always, always sit with me is I was going over the vision and and what we're hoping to do. And she paused me and she said, you know, so it, it sounds like you're the strategy and I'm pretty sure that I'm the tactics. Oh my. And boy, has that been true. Mm. She is able to bridge the space between strategy and tactics in a way that is truly uncanny and in a way that I've never been able to, mm. to have somebody be able to just see what's possible and then be able to break it down into accessible steps for, for me, for the educators, for the community, and for the learners. Mm. So she's in, incredibly gifted in that. And Brian, Brian might be the best teacher I have ever come across. Mm. He is so rooted in care, in love, and in joy that he just, it like emanates out of him. And so, you know, Brian first joined Embark as our, our founding sixth grade educator, and he built one of the most powerful communities that I've ever witnessed. Mm. And it has been such a pleasure to have him step into our head of school role in which he has just absolutely brought that same level of love and care to the entire school. And what makes Brian super unique in this space is that every moment of every day, he has not lost his space of being a teacher and an educator first, Mm. right? He leads through being a member of the team, not necessarily leading. Well, he certainly leads. He does not lead from a space of like, I'm the boss. He leads in a space of of care, of collaboration, Mm. of thought and wonder. And, you know, so I'm so humbled to be on a team with the two of them as they truly push me to be better at what I do every single day. Mm. And they truly, like, I would say that every day they breathe more brilliance into what Embark is. And as you were saying, you know, if you turn the Hubble telescope to what Embark is, it's as its own constellation. Yeah, I would say that Meg and Brian truly are what make up the sun of it. They are the two brightest stars that we would be lost without. So they guide the way. That's awesome, Miguel. And so I'm going to actually squeeze in one more question before we go to our first break. And it's kind of along the same lines because it's about someone else in your life. I often give the opportunity to guests to shout out to somebody, a giant upon whose shoulders they stand. So you shared with me that Greg McGillipin, and I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, has been one of those giants in your life. So who is Greg, currently the head of school at a school in Puerto Rico? And in what ways did he bring an understanding of humility to your mind and heart? And how did he shape your journey, which means he indirectly shaped Embark Education, right? Yeah, he absolutely did. Yeah, Greg is absolutely a mentor to me. He's the person who truly helped support me to see my own brilliance and supported me to find my opportunities to step into leadership. And without him, I, Embark would not be real. And I don't know that I would be where I am in my, in my journey and my career, both mm-hmm. in education and, and as a human. Mm-hmm. You know, but one of the things that has been really impactful and what I learned from Greg is the space to breathe within leadership mm. and to truly pause and understand his ability to essentially embody mindfulness within his leadership with care and intention mm. is so powerful. And, you know, one of the things that Greg always did when I worked with him is he always found the time to have conversation. And he would seek it out, but then quickly you would find yourself feeling like all he truly wanted to do was listen and that you were the most important thing to him in those moments. And he would balance that with every single person in the community. Mm. 
and you know all the teachers, others leaders, but also parents, students, maintenance people who soaped you know in the cafeteria. He would find those moments to make and support everybody to be the most important people in the school community because it actually takes all of us to create these experiences for mm. for youth and adolescents. And and Greg truly embodied that yeah. in a way that that I truly learned from and and still aspire to work at the level of which Greg does. So mm. I'm truly grateful. That's awesome, Miguel. And thank you. A thousand points of light, right? I mean that's that's what it is. And so, Miguel, thank you. I appreciate this section. We're going to have to leave behind the 15 other questions I wanted to ask you because there's not enough time today. But we'll talk to you again at the very end of the episode when we all come back together. So, hey, everyone, stay with us. We'll be right back with more from Embark Education. Hi, fellow educators. I'm Steve Shapiro. And like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there. Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi friends, this is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we are back with more about Embark Education and Embark the School, which believes in the innate potential that lies deeply within each and every one of us and is committed to creating learning experiences that provide youth and adults the space and time to flourish. So Brian, before I ask my first question, I just wanna say for the record that I love how you found ways on the soccer field early in your life to exercise leadership and discipline and experience failure and success. It seems like soccer was a portal you stepped through to discover things inside yourself you might not have known earlier in school or life, especially as you learned how much fun it is to motivate kids to do more than they thought possible. So listeners, coaches who become educators is a very, very cool concept. So Brian, I wanna pick up the story of your journey after growing up in Chicago, after your time with Teach for America, after your move to Colorado, and after your extraordinary experience teaching in Guatemala without any pressure from standardized testing. The next part of the story happens while on a ski lift with Miguel, a moment the gods must have been crafting with great relish. So how did that encounter lead to you coming to Embark Education? And I will note that you said on the Getting Smart podcast, you thought Embark was, quote, kind of nuts. So how did that happen? Yeah, Embark, I, I've confirmed that to be true. Embark <laughs> is kind of nuts. Um, well, you know, I was at a real crossroads, I would say, at the time. My wife and I were pregnant with our first child, and I was having that moment that I think all parents can relate to, where you're just trying to think of, who do I want to be? What is it that I want for my family? And I, I saw my path ahead of me as becoming a principal of of a local elementary school. And at the time, I was an assistant principal. And I... I saw what that path did to that person. It takes a toll. Mm. And I, what I recognized was there is just no way 
that I can be the father that I wish to be for my children uh, and the husband for my wife if that's the path that I choose for myself. And Mm -hmm. so ultimately, I was looking to leave education. I thought I better find something that is going to pay the bills and maybe I can come home at night and just be present. And that's a very pragmatic decision, but certainly not one from my heart. And at the time, my nephew was attending Embark as one of the first students to come through the school. And so I went on the ski trip and Miguel and I were checking in about our respective schools. And he was telling me about, you know, how they were intending to open a sixth grade program. And, you know, it really were like the clouds parted in Mm. my head. I was just thinking to myself, this is it. Mm. This is the thing. And you know, I don't even know what he said next because I probably wasn't listening anymore. I was already, I was already, <laughs> I was already dreaming this brilliant dream. And when we left that ski trip, I called my wife and I told her, "This is what's going to happen. I'm going to be the next sixth grade educator at Embark." And very few times in my life have I had such conviction about something to where I knew I was going to make that happen. And Miguel kind of just had to deal with it because <laughs> there was no way through hell or high water that I wasn't going to be claiming that position as my own. Mm. Wow, what a great story. My goodness, up there on the ski lift and the clouds parted, right? That's just an amazing story. So kind of along the same lines, because we're following your journey through this whole thing, you listed Tom Rath's Strengths Finder as a book that was influential to you. And in the book, Rath says, quote, what great leaders have in common is that each truly knows his or her strengths and can call on the right strength at the right time. So what are your top strengths, Brian? And I wonder if you can share a recent moment when you consciously called on one of them to help navigate a situation or achieve a goal. And by the way, this might open the door to talking about like seasonal drink menu or your upcoming site visits or even a student conference that you have. And your conferences are amazing, by the way. I spent a lot of time just reading that awesome blog that you wrote about your student conferences. So in the context of a strength that you called on, but you take it wherever you want to go. Sure. So we actually just use the Strengths Explorer, which is kind of the Strengths Finder light that is geared specifically towards middle schoolers. Mm. And so I took it again, just to see what how it would show up. There's the same categories, but maybe slightly different names. And so the three that came up for me were futuristic, focus, and confidence were three that come up for me. Mm. And, I, and I really do think you know that they are just a part of me. Sometimes I try to silence them because they get real loud. Mm. But when you lean into them in the right ways, they really can be super powerful. And so I think you know, as a leader, one of the things that I've tied back to is my experience as, as an educator and what worked for me and what didn't. And so I think it's specifically about, you know, I've been fortunate to be around Miguel who just is such a futuristic thinker. Mm. And, I, and I try to lead that same way where I think about what is possible. We live in a sea of impossibilities and that is just not the way that I look at the world. And it's one thing, you know, to like look at the world and see possibilities. It's another to be able to execute on them. Yes. And so I would say, you know, one of the things that I benefited from being an educator was in it, having a leader who helped us to shape a focus, not just a vision, but saying, these are the things we are going to accomplish. And so that is something that I I try to live every single day with our educator team. And so this year we set out to develop our design pillar of integrated and host site visits. Mm. And really, there are so many things that can draw our attention away from our goals, but ultimately those are the things that limit us actually reaching our goals. And so that is something that I have held us very firmly to is saying, does it serve these two goals? Mm. If not, you can pursue those in your own time but those are not going to take our team's time because these goals are too important and success is too important. I think that's the other thing is we so often in education are just struck over the head failures. And part of the reason is because we are constantly being asked to take on new things and they're fun and exciting. But as a leader, I try to be somebody who can really help the team to stay focused. And then the last piece I think is confidence, which is to say, when I set out to do something, I don't do it with the hope that it's going to work out. I do it with the conviction and the belief that it will happen. You know, and that is from definitely from my coaching background. But I think it's something that I believe emanates and just sort of like radiates off of me. And then to be around this team of people with incredible gifts, Mm. you know, I, I look at it as a space of liberation for them to be their very best self. And I can get out of the way because a lot of what I do is easy. It's like, say something futuristic, hold our focus, and then just believe. 
and then the, you know I'm surrounded by these incredible people that make stuff happen, mm-hmm. and so it's this confluence of talent, and so. This week on Thursday and Friday, we are going to be hosting our first ever site visit, which is something we set out to do in June of last year. Mm. And of the 20 spots that we offered, 22 are taken. Wow. So, you know, it's this, it's this prime example of just saying, we're going to do this thing. And here it is it happening. And so I'm, I'm excited to be able to relish in the, in the success that our, our team has made mm. happen. That's so exciting, Brian. I'm actually in the middle of designing a three-year leadership cohort here in Hawaii where I'm based. And what we're really focused on are these R&D site visits. And these are not just learning walks. These are actually super focused moments when you have to do the work that's necessary to make a site visit really click for you. And on your side, I can imagine how incredible it must be to prepare for something like that, right? Is that, that what's that process like to prepare? Yeah, it has been a tremendous amount of work from an incredible amount of people. And so from our marketing team, ensuring that we have the right messaging out there to the right people, to the educators thinking about really not only what is the essence of Embark, but how do I share the essence of Embark in 45 minutes that is motivating, exciting, and tangible. And so we're meeting once a week as a full team, but then a lot of the work is happening off screens, off camera, to put all of the logistical details together down to these things of, you know, what are we sending people and how do those things that we're sending them ahead of time yeah. link to something that is meaningful to us, not just something they're going to be throwing away. Right. And so the amount of thought and detail that goes into this aligned to our core values is immense. And there's a space where I think there's a lot of vulnerability too, where we're throwing ideas out there. And a lot of those ideas, A, we've never done them before. So they may happen, they may not happen. And even if they do happen, we have to be really open to the feedback that we receive on how they went. Mm. And so it's this super exciting time for us to be able to, I I wouldn't say we're, you know, we're not testing things in, in that same regard as, you know, as I might make it sound, we feel really strongly about what we're doing. And at the same time, this is the first step of a long journey ahead of us. Mm. That's that's super awesome. And I, I wish all of you the best of luck as this begins to unfold for you. And so, Brian, you and I share the same story, I think. We both dropped business majors and began tracking eventually towards education. And we both have a love of swimming, which has nourished my body and spirit for more than 40 years here in Hawaii. And by the way, how you handled the water temperatures in Lake Michigan is way beyond me. But given your background and pathway and your current position as head of school at Embark the School, I want to ask you one of those big education policy questions. So setting aside pay, housing, and the long hours, how might we inspire more Americans to become teachers? What's the secret sauce in your mind for how we do that? I think that there's many answers to the question. One of them that comes back to me though right away is that we need to instill a culture where passion is welcome. And so if you think back to any educator that you had that you really valued, you know, it was rarely about the content. It's usually about their passion for the content. Mm. And I think what I often see is because of so many competing factors, we are in a place where we have to do things in a certain way at a certain time for a certain reason. And it's rarely is it where we make this space for educators to just be passionate about their content, mm. passionate about their, their classroom, the community they're creating. And I often think about with middle schoolers specifically, and I say this to incoming families all the time, if your child is happy, they'll learn. Mm. If they're unhappy, they're not going to be in a position to learn. I think the same thing is true for educators. If they are passionate, they're excited, they're fulfilled, they will be incredible educators. And once we start that tipping point to where it is no longer about passion, it's about results, I think we lose the essence of, of what makes educators great and what calls people to be educators. You know, And so I think that for me, of course, there's so many other factors, but most people get into education based on passion and most people leave education 
because they're no longer passionate about the way they see education and their role within it. Mm. So in that sort of thousand points of light idea that Miguel and I were talking about earlier, I think I understand you to say that the more we bring sort of passion and purpose to the front of learning, the more we're going to perhaps prompt young people to actually think about becoming educators because they're just carrying on the coaching and guiding and mentoring and advising and sponsoring of that development of passion and purpose. Is that the way you see it? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think we look up to people in certain fields for a variety of reasons. I think pay is among them, but you know, kids don't want to be a professional athlete because of the money they make. They want to be a professional athlete because yeah. they're passionate about that endeavor. Right. Similarly, being a doctor, they see doctors as passionate about helping others. And I think that that same thing can be said for educators as well. You know, I can think back as I'm sure all of us can to one or two educators who just had that passion where you think, wow, if I could someday be like that educator or gosh, I wish there were more educators who showed up like he or she did. Mm. That's awesome. Awesome. I'd actually never thought of it that way. So you've you've introduced a new concept and and that's something that I'll carry forward as I interview other educators in the weeks and months ahead, Brian. So we have time for just one more question before we go to our second break. Last year, I read a book called The Good Ancestor by Roman Krasnarek. And it really, Brian, it just absolutely shifted my world completely which books don't often do, but this one certainly did. And in it, the author describes a series of good ancestor questions and prompts that lead to deep conversations about breaking free from the epidemic of short-term thinking that the author thinks we're in. And I agree. And there are six of these questions and prompts, and they're huge, and they live at the 30,000-foot level. So you selected one of them to respond to today. So here goes. So the question is, do you, Brian, anticipate a future of civilizational breakdown or radical transformation or a different pathway? So what say you? Gosh, it's funny. I remember seeing that question and now I'm like, <laughs> oh man, so many events have transpired since I selected that question. You know, I am just somebody who is deeply hopeful. Mm. I am somebody who believes in people. I believe in the goodness of people. And I believe that systems are just based on in the individuals who create them. And so I cannot, especially as a parent, you know, envision a future that is not positive, that is not optimistic. You know, and I think that being around young people only convinces me more and more of that. These, especially, you know, Generation Z might get a bad rap from some people, but they're awesome. Mm. They do not accept the status quo. They challenge it. And when they challenge it, they don't back down when somebody gives them an answer they don't like. They dig in. And so while many people would criticize this generation, I cannot wait to see the impact that they have on society. I have deep conviction that we are heading in a positive direction. And so, you know, I absolutely reject any notion that the civilization is breaking down and, and I'll hold my ground firm on that one. Mm, that's awesome. What a great way to take us to our second break, Brian. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you again at the very end when we bring everybody back together. So, hey, everyone, stay with us. We'll be right back with more from Embark Education. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unrulr.com. Mahalo. Everyone, we are back with more about Embark Education and Embark the School which is rooted firmly in radical trust, fostering relationships, 
and shifting mindsets while expanding to explore the profound potential of learner-centered education for youth and adults. So Meg, you shared with me a metaphor you used to explain your philosophy of education, something that was actually prompted by Embark, and what drives you forward. You described yourself as like an aardvark to ants. This, of course, sent me down a rabbit hole as I explored a bit more about aardvarks, which I really didn't know much about, (laughs) and their relationship to ants. But out of this metaphor comes your beliefs about what schools are and what they are for and who they serve. So how did the aardvark become entwined in your philosophy of education? And what do our listeners need to know about how your approach to teaching and learning is evolving? Oh, man, the aardvark is kind of an embark joke. (laughs) Because in a way, I'm like, wait, which is the embark and which is the anteater? (laughs) Anyway, yeah, the aardvark never really was a formal part of my my education (laughs) philosophy, except in so far needing to make the metaphor. I have had the good fortune to have a a career that I stumbled into a constructivist education program as an undergrad Mm. and didn't know what I didn't know about what that was. And that really set me on a path of of an entire career where, you know, sometimes I feel like it's it's a winding path and you get to a place and you're like, oh, that makes sense. In a lot of ways, I feel like mine was like the next thing led to the next thing led to the next thing. Mm. And now here at Embark, but, you know, I, I got that start of like, learning in context, you know, in community and for a purpose is why. And as an educator coming through, I, I spent a lot of years in the in the new tech network. And that was really revolutionary in my thinking about teaching and learning. But what's been really exciting, so in that new tech space and in spaces after that around project-based learning and really getting into like, what does good project-based design look like? Mm, And thinking about, like, what are the design principles that make a quality project? Mm. And then also spent time thinking about, like, what are the mindsets? What are the, like, sort of the teacher moves that make projects, high-quality projects? And what's been really interesting for me in coming to Embark was I, you know, I had this sort of project-based learning, deeper learning orientation for a number of years, very much steeped in that as a practitioner as a coach in support of school and district leaders. And what was really fascinating, what's been really, I think, great, and what I've loved about coming to Embark was this subtle shift, as Miguel talked about in the beginning, around like being pedagogically agnostic Mm. was a really interesting shift or thinking about like, what is the nuanced difference between deeper learning versus learner-centered, which is how we would talk about what we do at Embark. And it's really that exactly how he said, it's sort of bringing every, all of your tools to the table. You know, there's nothing that we don't do here. We definitely orient ourselves around projects, but we don't follow a particular design model per se. And there's no space in which direct learning is not an answer. You know, direct instruction is not an answer in our toolbox. But that nuanced difference between, you know, we can ask all the same questions in education around that we need to answer around curriculum and instruction and assessment and facilities and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But it's been really exciting to think about the, the nuanced shift from school as the center of those questions mm-hmm. and the learner as the center of those questions, still asking all the same questions. We now have an opportunity to answer them in a different way that allows us to bring all of sort of resources and knowledge we have to the table, but in service of individuals and their learning. Mm. So Meg, that's a perfect segue to my next question. You know, the heart of this podcast is the stories guests tell about their work and the impact that they have on either young learners or colleagues in education. And one story in particular, which I read about at a site you directed me to, is about a teacher named Josh, who was working with fellow ninth and 10th grade educators to implement integrated humanities classes. And I see this story as absolutely crucial to our listeners knowing you, Meg. So briefly, what is Josh's story and why was his story so important to you? You shared it in a job application to Embark Learning. So the interesting thing about the school that Josh was at is that it was a traditional comprehensive high school that was recognizing that it wasn't serving its learners in the way that they needed and wanted. Mm. And so took on the the process of transformation over a number of years. And, And I was able to join in that work. Like, 
the decision had been made to do this and plans were in place and they were getting into the meat of it. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, moving from standalone classes into these integrated classes. And it was that first year of like, really, okay, we're going to go in and try it. And so I was part of the process of helping to figure out like, what are the structures and systems to support educators to be successful in this space? Mm. And so I was a coach around, you know, curriculum instruction was joining regular meetings on their team meetings because there were two ninth and 10th grade teams. So Mm. they had a common planning period and they got together on a regular basis to talk about what was happening in their classes. And it was just like creating this space for like, they were, you know, to Brian's point about like wanting success and needing to feel success. It's like, what do we do to keep this? If this is really hard work, but how can we continue to try things and like know that we're in a space of learning and that failure is part of learning, you know, failure, quote unquote, right? Just because something doesn't work out doesn't mean that it wasn't a really good thing to have tried mm-hmm. for all the learning that came of it. And so Josh was, I convinced him to try something in, in his classroom <laughs> and running, like sort of passing each other in the hall. And I wasn't sure he was going to do it. You know, he was sort of like, oh, I hear what you're saying, you know, but this, but that, you know, the way that we all are like, mm-hmm can be reluctant and scared to try new things. And one day he was running past me in the hall and he was like, hey, I tried that thing. It went terrible. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and so anyway, but in a, a serious, but also sort of joking way. And, and I, when the next time they met, I was like, hey, Josh, like, let's hear about what you tried and how you think it went. And we were able to have that conversation as a team and really understand what worked and what didn't work about that so that it was transparent to everybody. Like we're all trying things. Sometimes they don't go well and we're able to learn together about what to do differently or, you know, what to tweak or what to scrap if, you know, mm-hmm. if that if something didn't really work out. Mm. And so it was like a moment on the journey of this team of educators of learning to shift their practice. Mm. And I'm continuing to be grateful for all of those folks. It was the humanities teachers, English and social studies teachers at 9, 10 and 11 that were sort of stepping into that space first for that school mm. and really being the ones to, you know, step into that journey and uh, like where the rubber meets the road kind of way. Right. So while you were at Next Plus Gen, a school in New Mexico, you team taught with someone named Kevin and the experience seemed pretty magical. And Meg, I also team taught twice, in fact, and it was absolutely the best year of my life as an educator. So I know this is gonna kind of come out of the blue. Our listeners want to know, Meg, what is the cost of a burger and fries? Yeah, that's a really great question. Next Gen is a new tech school in Albuquerque, and I got connected with that school because I was at a new tech school in Austin. And our coach, whose name is Kevin Gant, he helped found the school in Albuquerque. And they had a really small senior class. There were 30 seniors. Mm. And in order to make that doable, they were like, well, what if we had a dual certified math science teacher? And what if we had a dual certified English social studies teacher? And we basically like ran kindergarten for 17 year olds. Mm. And so that's what we did. And I actually, I'm a social studies teacher by training, but I got certified in English so that I could take this job because mm-hmm. Kevin is a dear friend of mine, an inspirational PBL educator who was instrumental in my, in my developing my understanding of project-based learning as a practitioner and as like, you know, as a pedagogical approach. And so we approached that senior year, that group of seniors, very much the way we do at Embark actually around learning experiences. So we didn't have math class, science class, social studies. We had a fully integrated senior year, which is how we approach learning at Embark around six week learning cycles based on projects in the shops. Mm. And we tackled kind of crazy questions. And one of them was, what is the cost of a burger and fries? And so that project was environmental science, Mm. statistics, economics, and informative writing. We read The Omnivore's Dilemma Mm -hmm. and really unpacked all of the different pieces of like, what does it actually take to produce a hamburger (laughs) and, you know, a serving of French fries? 
And I don't, I couldn't tell you, I don't remember. The, I don't, <laughs> they came up with so many different answers to that question that were just sort of blew all of our minds. And I think what's just so magical about this is that, you know, it seems like a, a small question, you know, it might be, you know, $2.50, but really when you dig into it the way that you did and with Kevin and with these students, that it turns out that the cost is huge, absolutely huge. And that those students had an opportunity to look at something really from a 360 degree perspective, which is the integrated part of the curriculum, right? When you come at it from all those different angles, right? Is, is that a fair way to look at it? Oh yeah, for sure. And that was our intention of like, how can we look holistically at, you know, major questions yeah. in the world? Yeah, that's awesome. So Meg, in another letter of rec, one of your colleagues, someone named Maggie, referenced a project you did that she really admired. And when I read what it was, I nearly fell out of my chair, in part because almost at the same time, I was doing a similar project with students in Hawaii. So Maggie wrote, quote, for example, Megan created a project where students had to play the part of junior associates at a law firm where they were to decide whether or not to take a specific court case, unquote. So, oh my God, be still my heart, Meg. <laughs> so briefly, please elaborate on this project and how it engaged your students. Yeah, well, we're gonna have to give a shout out to the current PBL Works slash former Buck Institute for Education here, mm -hmm. which is one of my also former employers. Very early on when I came back to the classroom after having been out in sort of policy worlds for a while, came back and they had a, you know, problem-based social studies or something. I can't even remember what it was called, but one of the projects was, you know, looking at the judicial system. I was teaching government at the time. Mm. And so we, you know, borrowing, as all good teachers do, beg, borrow, and steal from places where there are really good resources. Yep. That work from, and that I don't even know if is available anymore, but was really instrumental in helping me really understand at a deep level sort of what it means to design good units, good project-based learning units. Mm. And so that project was one that, yeah, explored a bunch of different, students could explore a bunch of different, bunch several different questions about like the one that comes to my mind right now is like women in the military was a big question mm. at the time that the unit was written yep. and was examining sort of what are the roles of women in combat and arguments for or against. And that was at a time where there was sort of like women getting into the like elite military academies, like the Citadel and VMI were big questions. Mm -hmm. So yep. especially a teaching background is at the high school level. And so there's a space of like, let's ask and look at real questions. Yeah. But I think what I've actually learned at being at Embark is that middle schoolers are as ready yes. to look at those questions, which is part of what's exciting about being at Embark. And part of my learning curve was like, okay, what 12-year-olds are really going to be able to shape business decisions within the shops? And the answer is 100%. Mm -hmm. You know, there was this moment a bunch of years ago when I was teaching at a relatively small all-girls school here in Honolulu. And the head of school called me and Megan. She told me to teach economics, which I, you know, not only do I, I hated it in college, it was, it's the dismal science for a good reason. And I was just like, ah, what the heck, I'll do it. And I threw out the whole curriculum. And I just said, this entire year is going to be spent in a series of hypotheticals or simulations like the one that I just described or that Maggie described. And that the students were just going to occupy these policy positions or as a lawyer or whatever. But the main idea behind my approach was that they were going to have to make decisions. And I keep coming back to this idea, Meg, that, you know, how do students even learn how to make decisions if you never ask them to make decisions? And it sounds like that's what you were getting into, right? A fair statement? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. So, Meg, thank you so much for this. And so, Miguel, Brian, and Meg, I would love to close this episode by having each of you share something 
you heard in today's conversations that jumped out at you or moved you or got you thinking. So your choice on whose thoughts you will reflect on. Meg, I'm going to have you go first, and then Brian, and then Miguel, you can close it out. So Meg. Well, you know, one of the things I think along the lines to our what we were just talking about, Josh, you know, Miguel said something in the beginning. Actually, you asked the question about the idea of parts to whole. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is I think when we think about learning in the whole way, we have to let students actually do the whole, mm-hmm. right? Like I think I've some, I'm trying, I can't remember who, but I've heard someone else, this is not mine, use the metaphor like of baseball and teaching players how to play baseball is like, if you only work on pitching for, you know, until they reach mastery, if you only mm-hmm. work on batting until they perfect, you know, they have a, a perfect swing, then you're going to lose interest. They're no, first of all, there is no such thing as, as perfecting that, right? That's a lifetime's worth of work. And it's also boring, right? Mm. If you only focus on each of the parts. And so I think inquiry-based learning, project-based learning, that sort of, this sort of you know, constructivist approach to learning is really about letting students play the whole game. Mm. As imperfect as it might be, learners have to have the opportunity at whatever level they're at to play the whole game. Mm. And so mm-hmm. that was just one. And when you were talking about that parts to whole piece, I was like, yes, the parts are important and not more important than the whole. Mm. You know, Meg, there's a great book by David Epstein about specialization versus generalization. And the conclusion that he comes to, and I, this is really simplifying the book, is that people who specialize in fact, don't succeed in the same way that people who generalize do. That if you, you might end up being a child, you know, you could be a child prodigy who plays the piano, but in the end, the person who sort of takes a general approach to learning, so what you're talking about is the parts to the whole. If you really understand the whole, then you have a different kind of life trajectory. And I I think I was thinking about that, Meg, as I was reflecting on Brian's experience as an athlete in a way, and that some of the best athletes are athletes who came to their position late in life because they had been dabbling in so many other things and that just made them a better athlete in a way. So that's like super interesting what you're talking about. So thank you. That's awesome. So Brian, you're up next. Yeah, I was thinking about a line that Meg said, which is failure as a part of success. Yeah. Just how deeply resonant that is for me as a, as a human being. And also, I think as a leader and a person who's worked at Embark, you know, as like that's been brought up, I was a good athlete, but I lost more than I won. Mm. In fact, like Miguel and I play on a soccer team and we lose every Sunday. <laughs> and we're like, we're like, we're like wow. it sounds like the, literally, it sounds like the dumbest endeavor. And mm. yet, I love it. And I think that it's all about the culture that you have. And and if you have a learning orientation, then you embrace failure as Mm. a part of success. And I've been fortunate to be a part of this organization where Megan Miguel created that culture and I just get to shepherd it now. Mm. But it's something that I I deeply believe. I'm not somebody who's afraid of failure. And yet, like I also approach things with confidence and a plan so that that failure is ultimately a part of success. I think that's part of my role. Mm. If you're just failing all the time and you're not getting anywhere, that is debilitating, mm. but that's that's not what's happening. And so I, I don't think you know I spoke much to that in my answers, but I loved that Meg brought that up. It's just so entrenched in our culture here that I almost brush over it. But we're failing all the time, and if we're not, what are we doing here? Mm. And so I thought you know what she named was beautiful, and I have benefited so much from being a part of an organization where that's just a part of who we are. It's the, it's the fabric of Embark. Mm. That's awesome, Brian. Next weekend, I'm going to bet my wallet that you and Miguel win. You will win. <laughs> not a good idea. But, but, <laughs> yeah, not, not a good bet. Not a good bet. We'll, we'll, have, we'll have fun, though. Yeah, I will have lost my wallet. I understand. Okay. So, Miguel, you get to close us out today. Yeah, thank you, Josh. It's, it is truly hard to pull upon just one area of the conversation as it was so, so rich. Mm. But the thing that continues to be resonant with me is the part of the conversation where you and Meg were talking about curriculum and asking authentic questions. Mm. You know, and what really is resonant with me in that is that we're not only asking authentic questions at Embark, we also have the authentic answers Mm. in which the students are the ones answering it like in whispers and yelling it from the rooftops. Mm. And 
their ability to truly make difference for themselves and for these two small businesses, our bike shop and our coffee shop, is truly meaningful. And one of the things that really was underneath that for me is one of the things we talk about at Embark is, is being good stewards of our resources. And, you know, really thinking through knowledge as a resource and that it's not ours to hold, but ours to steward and to be able to support our learners and our community to also just embrace and and steward that resource further, you know, beyond their time here in middle school, high school, and what's ahead for them. Mm. You know, Miguel, that's awesome. In the two weeks that I spent preparing for today's conversation, it's tempting, Miguel, to say that it's remarkable how much stewardship jumps off the page when you're studying not only you three, but just embark education and embark the school writ large. But in fact, it's not remarkable because it's actually embedded in your DNA. It's there. It's part of who you are and what you all do together. You older and younger learners together. It really jumped out at me as I was going through. It's like, wow, there's just so much stewardship involved in that. And I think that's what gives me so much hope for education writ large in the United States is that these thousand points of light, so many of them are focused on that idea, Miguel, of stewardship. And I think that's what we're going to need to avoid you know, the civilizational breakdown that Brian does not think is going to happen, right? That's the hope that we need. And I wonder if that's the way you see it as well. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, I see it as, you know, as I don't see it as a breakdown. But what I do see it as is that, like, you know, we're not preparing students for high school. Yeah. We're preparing students for who they are now, which will in turn prepare them for what's ahead. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. So Meg, Miguel, and Brian, thank you for taking the time to be on the show today. You folks are epic and amazing, and we at What School Could Be wish you an awesome rest of 2023. And most especially, I'm so excited for your site visit coming up. I hope it goes really well. I hope on both sides of that equation, the visitors and you gain a tremendous amount from that. So thank you for being on the show today. Thank Thank you, Josh. Thank you. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. The series is underwritten by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed and the author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Also, follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Listeners, the most important thing you can do in these uncertain times is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care.